Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Cutter Calloway, Dr. Cutter Calloway, Fuller University, Fuller, what is it? Seminary. Seminary. My gosh. Wow. Well, that, you know, that's a good, that's a good intro here because I was going to say, I wanted to say very early on, I've been off of recording You Have Permission conversations for a month now with a new baby. Oh, yes. He, uh, tomorrow, thank you, tomorrow he'll be one month old. And so I am definitely rusty. (laughs) (laughs) So you uh, and listeners will have to put up with me. It's my first one back. But it is good to have a genuine real life friend here for that first one back. I think I've got a little bit of leeway with you. We already have some rapport as buddies. And so I'm I'm glad. I'm you know what? I'm glad it was with you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm glad glad I, I get to yeah bring you back the first time. Uh, post-child. That's that's fantastic. I feel honored. I wanted my first time to be with you, Cutter, yes. and I'm glad that it I'm glad <laughs> that it is gonna be. Um we're talking about this podcast series that you have been working on for uh over a year now. Now it's now it's out mm-hmm. in the world, but I you and I talked about it like fourteen months ago when you were working on it. It's called Be Afraid. It's right. wherever you get podcasts. I'll just set it up briefly for listeners as like it's kind of NPR style production, like very, very highly produced narrative, a lot of field recordings in there, a lot of clips of interviews with various experts and and involved parties. 
really kind of what what would you say the spectrum of topics and approaches is there? Yeah, the the focus, sort of like the centerpiece, is horror fiction, primarily film and television. And so that's sort of like the fire around which we gather. But the people that I bring into the conversation range from filmmakers, uh, on-screen actors, talent, producers, that sort of stuff, people in the industry, to uh, fans, people that just uh, consume it, uh, enjoy it, appreciate it, to haters, <laughs> people that are like, how could anyone watch that? Or how does anybody, you know, how, yeah. how do, I can't stand it. And then the the added thing to me, I, you know, I do sort of uh, two things. One is sort of religious and theological explorations, as well as psychological. So I talk to experts in whatever, whatever kind of fears or religious sort of practices come up in a, in a film or whatever. And then also psychologists talking about what is it about our fears? What is it about not just why we fear, but then why on earth we would tell stories about scary stuff and enjoy it in some sense. Um, so it's psychologists, religious studies folks, fans, and creators that we all kind of get around and, and basically go, what is it about this uh, genre that seems so compelling right now? Well, people will very obviously know why I am interested in, in this project of yours. Let's start here. Horror films, for me anyway, uh, I'm a big I'm a big nerd when it comes to movies. I I love. Uh, probably you could call me a cinephile. Oh, excellent! Uh, I will. Then. I, I would say that's that's I'm 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 at least cinephile adjacent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I also love genre films, and mm -hmm, not just mm -hmm. arty films, not just sort of the critical darlings. Uh, yeah. For me, probably my top genre is crime. Oh, love nice. a good crime film. Uh, mafia, uh, maybe my favorite subtype of crime film. <laughs> nice. But horror eluded me for most of my life, only really kind of discovered an interest in it in the last, I don't know, six or seven years. Mm. And I have like some theories about that. One of which is that I, I really do think it had to do with being raised evangelical mm. and in some sense being raised to believe that you know, especially spiritual horror, like the exorcist exorcism of Emily Rose. I just, I think I tried to watch exorcism of Emily Rose in college and it just freaked me out. <laughs> and, you know, at that point in my life, I, I definitely believed that that stuff was real and, and had like sort of real evil power in the world. And so I, I think that that initial attitude to the extent that I had language for it was something like, don't mess with that stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. like let's uh, better left, better left alone. I think that's probably a very common approach. Mm. I'm sure you spoke with people that have that approach. Well, like yeah. wh what would you say to someone that that's kind of their starting position? It kind of depends, I think, on what the concern is. Some would say it's just because it's so real. I don't want to go there. Right. Like I don't want to just be uh, thinking about because there's there's enough, you know, Satan's present and is going to possess you or something, you know, or I've seen it enough in some society or whatever. And so it's more a, just uh, a personal conviction. Like I'd rather not uh, dabble in that. If, when I'd go fiction, I want it to be fiction, right? Yeah. But there's this other subset that would say it all, it itself, like the act of consuming it or watching it actually invites some sort of evil into your life or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And 
in either case, on the, on the, the first hand, I go, you know what? Everyone has different sensibilities. So I'm not like, I don't go, you, you ought to watch horror. Right. <laughs> That's like telling someone that they really should get into crime movies. Like it doesn't, you exactly. Know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not a big deal. Or, or maybe there's a third category of people that then for whatever reason, if they're coming from that evangelical sensibility would then tell people you ought not to watch it either because right. it's, right. it's going to open you up to some sort of influence or it's just morally, spiritually, whatever, ethically destructive. And those two, I do have problems with on the first hand, the opening up <laughs> to some sort of spiritual influence is it, to me just kind of bad logic. It's one thing if you went into some sort of like ritual and you decided we're going to perform a seance and we're going to invite, you know, spirits in and we're going to uh, consult with the dead. Like if you like murder mysteries, that doesn't mean you're murdering people. <laughs> it means you're li- watching stories about it. Right. And that can be really helpful, and instructive. And we can we can talk about why that is psychologically or whatever later. But the other side that I find that it really drills down to is the, the most common response I get is the Philippians passage of, well, shouldn't we focus on whatever is good and true and pure and noble and up, you know, and that's just dark and sad and bad, you know, um, and this, you know, it's going and, and my response is always, well, that's correct, but you're forgetting that the very first word in that passage is whatever is true. And yeah. the truth is often horrible and horrific and traumatic and chaotic and dark. And in many ways, if we look at our own hour being those who would formally identify as evangelical, and if you're starting from this position, from your own sacred scriptures, your own sacred stories are just riddled with horrific, awful stuff. So much so that, uh, shameless plug, I edited a a volume, a new devotional. People that are not listening can see that I'm holding up now. Don't look away, the horrors of Holy Scripture. And we do this devotional where we're taking some of the most horrific texts and saying, what does it mean that we're invited to actually not just acknowledge them, but to meditate on them, right? To yeah. like, to, to think deeply about these stories where, you know, people are dismembered, <laughs> where there are spiritual possessions, where there are demonic influence, you know, why is it that we're invited to do that if today it's wrong or bad or unhealthy to watch a horror movie? And so that's usually my response is number one. Um, the truth is often horrific. And number two, our own religious texts and stories are so filled with these these horrific things that it's just disingenuous to say, on the whole, full stop, nobody should watch this. Yeah, or I think that we might call that response a kind of a spiritual bypassing mm-hmm. situation where there is a there is a problem in some sectors of Christianity where all the lament, and all the sort of recognition of the suffering of life is kind of drained um, from the content of yeah. the of the worship experience of the service, et cetera. Now, sometimes that's done uh, because what the population ultimately tells the pastor and and worship director that they want through their action, through voting with their feet and dollars or whatever, is that they just want something inspirational and yeah. and you know just uplifting. Yeah. you know, positive, uplifting K-Love radio, yeah. <laughs> right? And theologians and others will really rag on that kind of surface level Christianity. I, I'm a little bit more open to the role that it plays in people's mm-hmm. lives, especially having had clients for whom that was quite important Yep, and who had quite a different temperament than I have. 
my background as listeners know is having spiritual trauma, religious trauma through the issue around issues around end times and, and kind of other people were more afraid of hell. I was never afraid of hell. I didn't go to a lot of like uh, hell house type mm-hmm. events. I wasn't raised Southern Baptist, mm-hmm. but you know, when I developed the spiritual harm and abuse scale, one of the subtypes of spiritual abuse or to be more accurate experiences that may cause spiritual harm and abuse is this kind of developmentally inappropriate exposure to um, violence, uh, violence in God's name. The The larger subtype is actually called embracing violence. Um, one of the one of the individual items is this sort of developmentally appropriate thing. Again, I'm rusty. First one back from maternity mm-hmm. leave. But, you know, there, that there's that kind of element to it. And I think for me, it was almost like I had my kind of nervous system, my adrenaline system was so exhausted from things around the end times and the rapture that like, I was like, Frank Peretti, I just don't even have, <laughs> I don't even have the bandwidth for that shit. I'm dealing with this other stuff over here. And and so I, I think that part of it for me being even open to any of this stuff was kind of working through that and getting my own panic disorder into a better state, because I think that's a, a related issue is just a straight up adrenaline kind of thing of like, I when I had basically untreated panic disorder, Cutter, I did not need horror movies to like get my blood pumping or, you know, like I was trying to kind of regulate down all my waking hours. I wonder if that's come up in your work around just the fact that this fiction tends to kind of up people's energy. It, it, it is a stimulant, yep. right? It yep. is, it is not a depressive yep. uh, or depressant rather. Now my expertise and background like yours is in Christianity. However, I think this probably holds in other religions as well and, or even non-religions where, but, but especially the sort of subculture of evangelicalism in the last 20 to 50 years have, I think become unique sort of purveyors of fear <laughs> um, and, and cultivating a whole generation of people that are exactly as you're describing yourself, right? That that religion mm-hmm. itself was so inextricable from the kind of leveraging of fear. And I don't think any of the, those leaders or churches or whatever knew they were doing this, but it, it was tapping into these base level psychological uh, mechanisms. And for the sake of proselytization or for the sake of conversion or for the sake of maintaining spiritual identity, something like that. Right. It was intentional and it was like, it's so bizarre because the very same other cultural products that would be critiqued for amplifying fear, whatever, are almost indiscernible from the very same things like the hell houses, like even passion plays. I mean, have you, have you, there's, uh, I, I met my wife actually at a large, I won't even name the church, a giant Pentecostal megachurch that did these like brutal Easter plays with like all sorts of demon possession. And like, I couldn't, I think they were literally crucifying people. I mean, like it was crazy. Yeah. And all the spiritual for all that stuff. And then to the developmentally appropriate stuff, one of the greatest horror films of the past couple of decades is a little film called Mel Gibson's The Passion. And it's just straight up torture porn. Yeah. And people will screen that in churches for kids. Yeah. And I'm like, it's rated R for a reason, people. This is not the kind of violence you expose. Mm-hmm. Now, 
Is it cinematically beautiful? Yes, like it's a profound film, deeply problematic. But why in the hell are we showing that <laughs> to, to kids? Like this is, it's crazy. So I just want to acknowledge and affirm that there's a, a problem there in terms of, or an inconsistency, verging on hypocrisy of the kinds of horror, the kinds of violence, the kinds of gore that is endorsed and approved on in one domain and then rejected as evil and demonic or whatever in another. And that's a problem. I think that we need to think through. There's got to be a sort of baseline evolutionary system here that has to do with survival, right? There is a certain amount of fear that even healthy parents will, you know, try and explain to their kids. Like we occasionally tell our oldest son, like, no, like, you know, you or someone else could die if you run out into the street, you know, like th this is very dangerous, you know, and that kind of a thing is going to activate the same brain circuits, if you want to say it that way, as if we told him these kind of spiritual horrors that could come to pass, right? Like he is young enough that he wouldn't be able to tell the difference. The way that I would kind of conceive of it is like, We've got this module that developed for our survival, right? And then it can be a kind of a shortcut to getting kids to take things seriously, which then can become kind of addictive, not in the proper chemical sense, but can be kind of like, oh, wow, this is very efficacious for getting young people whom it is sometimes hard to motivate faith. Uh, you know, I, I talked about this with the end times with any of this sort of violence and, and horror motivating religious decisions, uh, but especially Jesus coming back soon or the sort of drunk driving, you go to hell because we have to motivate for younger people how they could come to this fork in the eternal road because they're not going to die anytime soon. We remember being young. We weren't worried about death, but anything that can kind of sort of bring that up, then a child or an adolescent responds to that and they use kind of the religious language that, that our group has given them. And then we go, Oh, their faith is growing. <laughs> so that's kind of the, that's kind of the cycle. As I see it. it, it's, it's building on this native module. We're kind of like hacking it in a sense to, to give us different kind of outputs that are about this, the spirituality and the, our kids soul and kind of their relationship to the divine. Is that, is that tracking? One bit you're getting at is is the threat response, right? So, so yes, uh, fear and anxiety are not bad, right? That these are survival mechanisms. You're supposed to respond when you hear something go bump in the night and it's right. dark. Um, if you're in the woods, um, you know the false positive is uh, better than a false negative because the tiger eats you. You know this sort of thing. So yeah, we've totally developed and evolved to have that inborn capacity for survival. And that's definitely what's being leveraged in a horror film or in a, you know, a scary story. Now, when you add to that sort of cultural evolution, um, what's pretty interesting in terms of the storytelling. So now we get these communities, these narrative communities that start creating stories around these fears. A non-religious example would be Little Red Riding Hood, right? So imagine a time when the cost of knowing the difference between a domesticated dog and a wolf is pretty intense. So you don't want your kids 
figuring that out on the fly, <laughs> um, your, your line is going to end pretty soon. You won't be able to replicate. So you tell this very specific story about, oh, what great big teeth you have and what ears you have. Almost, not even almost, to suggest here are the distinguishing marks between a domesticated dog and a wolf that you need to be afraid of because, in fact, there are wolves that will tear your flesh to bits and you're dead, right? Right. Like, like that's real. And so we tell these stories um, in part for a sort of pedagogical reason, right? Like we want to train people out of this. Now, that is true in those high-stake scenarios where you would go, the value of that story is really to instill fear into the kid. Today, it's the you know, run out and get hit by a car or whatever. Now translate that mm -hmm. into a different narrative community, exactly what you're describing. And the mechanism is exactly the same, but it now is couched or cast in these sort of metaphysical terms of the the wolf now is yeah. Satan. <laughs> Seeking all whom he may devour. Yeah, exactly. And like, I'm not as the kid or whoever, or even the parent, because it's not like the parents are insincere. They, they sincerely believe it. And so they're saying... I'm going to tell you the Little Red Riding Hood story because there really is yeah. a devil out there who really will consume you. And by the time you find out, it's too late. It's too yeah. late. To connect this actually to films and other forms of storytelling, uh, Brian McDonald, who used to write for Pixar or was sort mm -hmm. of like worked at Pixar and now works, at least last I knew, uh, at this creative agency in Seattle. In talking about his work, I've met him briefly, but I've talked with his um, his boss or his, I don't know, co-leader or whatever, Jesse, who, who runs Belief Agency here in Seattle. Mm. He was, I think, paraphrasing Brian. And I also read Brian's book, Invisible Ink. I can never tell what it came from. But the idea is that stories develop for human beings as survival information. They are ways of containing survival information in a memorable package. Now, why... Is a like three act structure or whatever it is, uh, the way that Brian says it is, I'll tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I told you. And that's kind of like the introduction. And then you tell the whole story and then you kind of recap it. And he says that we do this in conversation. We do it in movies. We do it in books. And for whatever reason, that's just proven to be a way that humans retain information well. And it's survival information that it developed for. <laughs> And so basically the best storytelling now is modeled on how we tell survival information. And so just applying that to briefly to the evangelical type setting, it's like for those parents, it is literally it's mm -hmm. eternal survival information yeah. as opposed to this life survival yeah. information. And so all that mechanism stuff kind of that makes sense. Also, that's a fun prism to then talk about movies and yeah. children's stories and oh, yeah. all that kind of thing. Yeah. We have one of the uh, episodes of the podcast. I talked to Pete doctor for a long time and Tony Hale about uh, kids m movies and stories. And I, I accuse Pete doctor of just making horror stories. I'm like all the Pixar movies, they're all riffing on horror tropes and horror. And, 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 and an interesting thing he said is on their team, they've, well, someone asked like, can you actually tell a story? It's, and then specifically a good story without anything bad ever happening. And he's like, we kind of determined the answer is no. <laughs> he's like, you just, you can't do it. So now they, they skew towards lightheartedness, inspiration, whatever. Sure. No, you're, no, you're totally right. Because we, we've been going through this because Soren's turning four early this year and he gets a little bit of TV time every mm -hmm. day. And, you know, I love How my own you. TV time. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, trying to inculcate in him a love for movies so that he and I can watch movies for the rest of his life. But 
it's really hard to find stuff like all the kids stuff. You know, if you have an eye for this, like having read, you know, Brian's book, for instance, it's like I note the stakes. I note kind of the the crisis point, you know, the inciting incident. What are the what are the dramatic stakes? And, you know, they even even the really little kids shows, they still find a way to do it. It just it doesn't work as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so the stakes are like Leo has to find the missing piece for the bridge <laughs> or else the other trucks can't go across. That's like right. those are the stakes yeah. of this little episode for a one year old or two year old or whatever. And, you know, and then one thing that Jaffrey and I have noticed to our dismay is that even a lot of this stuff that would be good for him in order to motivate the stakes of the story, it gets too scary. And he gets scared. And so we were always trying to like negotiate this and find something that's not scary. That lines up perfectly with what you're saying must be going on at Pixar, but at any of these animation studios, any of these production companies that are making kids stuff, it's like, well, if the baby raccoon might die, (laughs) then that's going to make the kids watching it. They're going to like it more because it's going to sort of like get into them deeper and they're going to ask their parents to watch that show and not the other show where the baby is merely, uh, I don't know, going to be sad or not get their favorite fruit. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, that's the, that's when the separates the the artists and geniuses from the just hacks, you know, of finding that, that right size balance. And what I also find interesting. So then when you start thinking developmentally, um, and I do think this is why the value of stories is helpful at any of these ages, right? We always, and we do this in all societies, like you couch, even the same story has more detail or graphic elements or whatever, as you start telling it for older audiences, once you get to the sort of adolescent stage, this uh, one psychologist, uh, Colton Scrivener, um, who's done a lot on uh, he, he he just morbid curiosity, right? Like, why would we be interested in these kind of stories that are horrific? Like, what is that? Um, even though they scare us, even though they uh, disturb us. And he said, well, it's a lot of this is training and managing threat response, not just individually, but then as a community. So. The reason, for example, teenagers love to go together to watch horror movies. He's like, it's similar to, you know, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's antelope or what on the Serengeti that lions would hunt. So let's say it's antelope uh, gazelles, maybe. I don't know. Um, and he's like, you'll you'll watch these. And what's interesting is the lions and the gazelles are actually always inhabiting the same space. It's not like they're always running away from the lion. But what they'll often do, you'll get these herds of adolescent uh, antelope that kind of go up close to the lion um, and then kind of come around back around and they keep kind of flirting with that boundary. And what they're doing is they're observing the movement of the lion because the lion is a predator that eats all like right now, ferociously chases, devours it and then is exhausted and, you know, like sits for a week and does nothing. And so a big part of what they're doing is they are learning both how to actually anticipate and read the threat, the actual threat. Is this a wow. time we do need to run or not? Yeah. Is this a time we can come up? And then what do we do as a group, right? Like how do, how does, how does Joe respond? Does, does he like go crazy? Does, you know, yeah. how do I respond? These sort of things. And so a big part of it is coming up and negotiating um, your threat response in a place that, in a, in a space that is actually safe. So you know, actually, right now, the lion's not going to eat us, but it's still um, developmentally important and evolutionarily important for us to know how to respond when the lion does actually attack. And so part of the the draw to these narratives 
is to go, we know it's still a story. And so I need to sit with this safe space. And again, when if you're a parent with kids or whatever, and, and I have uh, younger kids too, it is actually why it's important for people to watch with their kids. Um, mm. A lot of people are like, oh, is it the content that's going to be detrimental or good? And it's like, actually, kids are resilient. They can see all sorts of stuff and whatever. The key is, do they have someone with them to like process Okay, now what would you do in that situation? Why, you know, if the cat does die, how would that make you feel? What, you know, these sort of things. And so a big part of the draw of horror or these scary things in particular is it gives us a safe space to negotiate and learn threat responses. Yeah. Um, and and that's part of why, especially as adolescents, before their brains are fully <laughs> functioning, I mean, well, that's up to like fully 25 connected. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really connected. Um, it's an, it's it, particularly important for them and also why you see those kind of groups getting that kind of as you were saying before, like that adrenaline high, right? Like it's it's both a high, but it's also like a, a training ground for, okay, maybe there is a, sl- a killer out there lurking in the darkness. How do I respond to that? Um, and they, they process that by watching horror movies. Man, that is just so interesting. I mean, spending a minute here with adolescents and the adolescent mind. So one of the things you learn in developmental psychology is you get some language for why teenagers are so reckless, Right. That like why they get into more car accidents, why they are, you know, for instance, like less likely to be focusing on the road if their friends are in the car. They 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 there's not just a distractibility there. There is also sort of a reduced awareness of danger. And sometimes that's described as a reduced ability to sort of project into the future. Right. And so that's just interesting, because if that's true, And if like scary narratives, you know, for us, that might mostly be movies or TV shows like American Horror Story or these these kinds of things. But in the past, it would have just been scary stories around the campfire, you know, and anything like what I remember being in a kid and reading Goosebumps or are you, you know, watching Are You Afraid of the Dark? Right. So these kinds of things that are kind of introducing adolescents and others to uh, dangers, I wonder if that in in a sense kind of either helps them develop that casting into the future to to think about consequences and, or is a kind of a replacement for Mm. that ability, Mm. which will come later. Like, you know, just contrasting it with having a baby because, you know, we just had a baby. I don't need a damn thing to get me (laughs) immediately afraid of what could happen to that baby. I, I feel it. I feel an awareness of it. You know, every hour I am awake right now. Uh, but I'm older and I have lived through more things. I've experienced more loss. I've experienced more danger. I wonder, so if it's it's both kind of training and replacing that in young people, that is so interesting, that, yeah. that kind of uh, added value. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it so much in terms of future projection. I think that's right. Especially if you, if you come in without much lived experience. I mean, what, you have no other option, right? Exactly. Yeah. You're 13. Yeah. But I'll also say from now, I, the couple studies that I have in mind, I don't believe anybody was a minor. I don't think I'd have to check. Um, I think they were all over age, but, um, some studies on resiliency through COVID and some really fascinating stuff on people who were consumers of like frequent consumers of horror tended on the whole to respond their mental health post COVID significantly better than those who did not consume horror. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and so part of the, you know, again, this somewhat uh, correlational, but but the, the couple articles I read on this um, was suggesting that in a similar way, you're given this space to navigate anxieties and traumas and chaos mm-hmm. that anyone else who's not is just locked in a in a room by themselves, right? Like just filled with anxiety. And so a similar kind of thing where you're going, okay, well, we're in the middle of this like crazy making time, this its own unique kind of horror. Um, but we have no places and no spaces to process that. The people that had them in this, in these narrative forms, um, tended to, to do better. I don't know. And this is where I, I it wasn't in these studies I'm thinking of, they weren't really talking about future projection, but of course yeah. that has to be right. Like it seemed like there was, there was no future in during COVID, right? It was, right. Just, it became timeless. And so yeah. all these narratives were going like, imagine a world in the future where a, a, a pathogen takes over and kills mm-hmm. everyone. It's like, well, they had it. So I think you're onto something that it at least gives you, and this is all narratives, right? Like it takes all these discrete, unrelated uh, happenings in life and then puts them in a timeline, essentially. Like it plots them such that there is a future, such that there is a what happens next. And I can only imagine developmentally that would be really important for adolescents and young adults to go, oh, wait, you know, I might one day turn 25. (laughs) I might one day be 40. What happens then? My wife and I are just days away from the birth of our second son. And so if you are hearing this now, it means that I am currently getting no sleep and I will not be conducting any You Have Permission interviews for the next few weeks. Don't worry, we've already, we've banked a bunch of them ahead of time. So there will not be any sort of significant break in the action from your perspective, uh, unless something else happens. So no big deal there. Um, and I'm not I'm not here asking for, you know, a sympathy Patreon contribution or anything like that. I'm just letting you know that this ad is going to be running for a month or two because I'm not going to want to record another one and tell you about the perks of becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Those perks include, of course, two exclusive episodes per month not available on the main feed, at least not the whole thing on the main feed. Access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. And every episode of this podcast ad free on the special patron feed, which comes into your email inbox once you sign up and you can add it to your regular podcast app and you can listen to all these episodes, the normal ones, not just the patron ones, without any ads. So that's why you might go to patreon.com slash Dan Coke and give seven bucks a month to be a part of the Patreon community. You might also do it mainly because of the Facebook group and the resources there and the community there. There's any number of reasons, really, why you might want to do this. You might think of it as like a, a, a shower present for a new baby. You might just feel bad for me. And maybe you've been here. Uh, before. Maybe you've been here more than two times and you know just how exhausted I will be for the foreseeable future. Either way, thank you for being a regular listener of this show. Whether or not you join the Patreon community, I don't really care. I'm grateful for your involvement. 
Thanks for listening, thinking through this stuff with me. I appreciate all the emails I get from listeners. Feel free to send those. This is getting too long for a Patreon ad, so I will end it here. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch, our family of now four. Thanks, you. So, Cutter, I know that you interviewed a currently practicing Roman Catholic exorcist priest. Correct. So let's start here. Tell me one surprising thing that he said to you about his work or about kind of just that whole world of Catholic church and exorcisms and all that. Well, maybe this is surprising. Maybe it's not. Um, afterwards, I'm like, I guess that makes sense. But but essentially that it it wasn't scary is not the right word. He, he wasn't all that disturbed by it. (laughs) Like I I would have thought, I mean, I don't know. I would have, I would have thought your loins and the get in the breastplate of righteousness. You're going into spiritual battle. Yeah. That, that was his MO, right? Like you got to be prepared. Like this isn't for everybody. You know, this is intense, but you know, in retrospect, I go, okay, well, I guess anything that anybody does, let's say you're a trauma surgeon, right? Mm-hmm. Like first time I see someone come in with multiple gunshot wounds and whatever, I I would probably be horribly, you know, traumatized for a while. Yeah. But then over time with training, with, you know, whatever you go, okay, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I had seven surgeries today. So yeah. Or if you um, work with suicidal clients as a exactly. therapist or in a yeah. mental health clinic or something. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, in retrospect, I go, okay, well, I guess any profession where you're involved in some, what we, what many people would think is pretty intense, you kind of, it becomes the everyday. The other stuff was really just more, there was now, you know, I'm Protestant. <laughs> um, and so there's some differences there, but a, a lot of the kind of like, huh, parts had more to do, I think, with his almost certainty with how things were operating and why they were operating in that way. And I was like, oh, like, okay. Oh, his kind of, his case conceptualization, <laughs> yeah, if exactly. you will, so, of what's going on. Okay, so what, what do you mean by that? So like one thing, he's like, okay, well, so what you're doing when you're, you know, performing an exorcism is not, you know, fighting with Satan. Um, what you're doing is trying to find out how this demon or, or, or demons gained jurisdiction, legal jurisdiction over the person. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and, he, and he's like, yeah, yeah. The reason that a demon can possess a person is because the person has given them um, legal, almost like a tenant, right? Like you would sign a contract and they did something that gave them the legal authority to reside in this body. And I was like, say what now? <laughs> Tell me more about this. And how do you know? Wow. So, so some of it, I'm like, it, it's just the the oddity of like, well, where does that come from? Why did, why do you say it in those ways? And what, and so that's where I think I told you offline of, of we started talking metaphysics and stuff. I was like, well, and so at one point I go, you know, I'm of the impression that, I mean, well, this, this didn't work too much in the conversation. So I kind of abandoned it, but I'm, I'm essentially a monist me. um, You know, what do you mean by monism? I think there's just this, like this body of mine is me. Um, I don't have some like separable thing that is the real cutter floating out somewhere. Mm-hmm. And currently it resides in me. And then mind, one day you're we'll, not yeah. a mind body dualist. Yeah. yeah dualist, body and yes, soul. Exactly. Yeah. So other than instead of dualist, I'm a monist, but I am a theist and I'm probably most rightly accused of being a panentheist. 
And what, what I mean by that is, I think that the whole of reality is held up and infused by the Spirit of God. And so whatever life force we all have is actually the active presence, and scare quotes, of God's Spirit in the world. And so I was trying to ask him, I was like, so, because he was also saying, like, can a Christian or someone who is, who whose domain or whose body is inhabited by God or God's spirit, does that spirit then like leave while then the demon comes in? And like, that's weird because like, is it like half yeah. and half or, you know, so it was conversations like that of like, how do you explain what's happening in the person when you envision, okay, there's a demon in them and they have yeah. legal jurisdiction. Um, and these were just some new terms and things that I hadn't thought through. I, I had a couple things. I had one thing I wanted to bring in to this conversation, which is the, the power of the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Well, so I want to talk about that placebo and expectation. Yep. Uh, but also I, I have a, a possible idea for kind of this whole legal jurisdiction thing, yeah. the way that he phrased it. But first let's talk about placebo and expectation. So the idea is just that, you know, when we think of placebo effect, also there's nocebo effect, which is the, the expectation that something won't happen. Yeah. Right. So then that has a similar power. So placebo effect is one of the strongest medicines mm-hmm. uh, that we have discovered, mm-hmm. right? And it works on all kinds of ailments mm-hmm. and uh, just thousands and thousands of studies mm-hmm. show over and over again, yep. the power of placebo. I'll use one example. So at the, uh, you know, these big meta analyses of hundreds and hundreds of studies of SSRIs, yep. selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, also known as antidepressants or anti-anxiety yep. meds. The placebo effect accounts for approximately 70% of the benefit that people get from these drugs. And the fact that they get another 30%, the FDA is like, that's great, actually. A 30% or it might even be 80, 20, 75, 25, something like that. But it's in that realm. A lot of it comes from, I am taking something that will make me better. Now you can break that down. You can say, I'm willing to take something that will make me better. Okay. I got a little bit of skin in the game, right? So placebo... And what we expect is such a huge portion of our life experience. And, and so that is, that's kind of my first principle when I'm trying to understand people's experiences of the spiritual realm, the demonic, the whatever, uh, and people who grow up expecting that they live in a world where demons sometimes possess people, uh, that must play a role. Now I, of course, I could be wrong and there could be all these demons and other <laughs> entities. I personally don't believe in them. I don't yep. I don't know that they don't exist. But I'm trying to understand this stuff in 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 ways that don't sort of rely on that. The the connection point here though to the jurisdiction thing that the that the priest mentioned, there is a thread that goes through many therapists understanding of how therapy works and what is required. People who disagree with each other on many other elements of psychology and therapeutic practice all agree that there is for almost every client and almost every syndrome, there needs to be either a moment or a process by which the client takes responsibility for their own care for their own progress that they basically decide and then continue to decide and be committed to changing and getting better. And except for things that are highly unconscious, 
I'm thinking of, you know, taking Adderall if you have ADHD. That's pretty much a neurological situation. There's not a ton of willing and sort of decision-making going on there. But most mental health issues require this buy-in from the client. And a lot of, you know, treating clients with positive regard, finding things to like about them, joining with them is about helping to elicit this this moment and then continue a series of moments of taking responsibility. Now, that doesn't sound all that dissimilar to I've given jurisdiction over to this thing in my life and now I'm taking it back. <laughs> and to let's tie it into horror. I just for the first time last week saw the film Misery from 1980 oh, or whatever it is, wow. 80 something. Yeah. James Caan, Kathy Bates, yeah, Kathy it's a Bates, Stephen yeah. King yeah. adaptation, uh, very well-made, incredibly well-made film. Uh, that story of a super fan trapping a famous author who is kind of a stand-in for Stephen King himself. Mm -hmm. Stephen King, decades later, was very clear the super fan character was an, an instantiation, a personification of his drug addiction. Oh. <laughs> so so that character who is trapping the 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 writer in her home and and you know the, the kind of horror that ensues <laughs> is a metaphor for the fact that he, the <laughs> drugs and his addiction to them had kept him there and <laughs> you know without spoiling it too much the character James Kahn the writer he has to sort of like kind of wake up and and <laughs> come up with a plan to uh to to rescue himself essentially yeah, yeah. and that's a good metaphor. I mean, so yeah. that's kind of the waters we're swimming in. I, yeah, yeah. I've just given you a lot, but I'm curious what you think. One thing I, I, I didn't say, but you intuited was he also says that exactly what you're saying is that without the, the client or the oppressed, possessed person getting to the point of renouncing that jurisdiction, it doesn't matter what he, the exorcist does. And that's why he was saying his job is to find out the root of where that initial invitation was so that they can undo it. So you can renounce it. That is like finding when I'm doing trauma work with people in cognitive processing therapy, you find you, you determine collaboratively the uh -huh. index trauma. Uh -huh. This is the sort of worst event or yep. the primary event from which, you know, and some people have multiple traumas, of course, but you pick one to work on and you got, and you know, and then they have to stop avoiding thinking yep. about it. You know, they, they have to sort of choose to like lean in and, and suck it up. It's very painful for a while. I mean, it, it just doesn't, I mean, Cutter, it doesn't sound yeah. to me like I need to posit a demon to, like, I could understand, I want to say two things. I want to be very careful here. Yeah. Ontologically, in terms of what I think exists in the world or what actually yeah. exists in the world or doesn't exist, I don't think we need actual demons to make sense, for instance, of the exorcist's experience. However, I do believe back to placebo, and I don't mean that negatively. I just mean sort of our lives are shaped by our expectations, what we expect them to be. I will I will 99.9% .9 never have a transformative experience reading the Quran because I don't expect to. But if I had grown up in Iran, I would that, that would go up to down to 50% or, you know, whatever. It would be massively different. So I don't expect it. So it won't, it probably won't happen to me. So in terms of, Hey, here's some language for this. You've given this demon legal jurisdiction 
and why and when and what was it to avoid or what was it to solve in your life? And can you acknowledge, can you renounce that and, and focus on it and be willing to take it on yourself? I mean, I mean, this yeah. is almost too, this is almost too clean. Yeah. Cutter. No, I'm, I'm, I feel like I need more problems here. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm more problems. For my worldview. Um, well, so maybe a few things to say. So one, for the listener to remind, this was me talking to a Roman Catholic exorcist. I am not one, nor do I endorse no, of course, all of those. So I'm with you, I think. But to be fair to him and others that, that uh, practice this, they'll even say, you know, 98% of the time, in fact, this is, this is a pure mental health thing. Right. I have heard that too. They, they, they recognize psychology and yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and they're like, we, we partner with yeah. trained psychologists. Like, yeah, isn't yeah. That some, some are trained as some handful. Yeah. work in collaboration always. Um, the character with in the exorcist, which is, I think loosely based on a real guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he's a psychiatrist and a priest, correct? And, yeah. and always the most skeptical. Ex- well, that makes it a better story. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, or the yeah. ones that are like, I don't believe this. Yeah, yeah. And they're trained actually to be skeptics in that regard. Yeah. Um, placebo and mental health. I'm with you. Number one, if you look globally, so like the fact of the phenomenon of exorcisms and this demon possession phenomenon is just a fact. It just happens. And it's it's near universal, right? Like it's everywhere. So something is happening in people that their different sort of local tribal customs, cultures, narratives, yeah. give them resources to explain and navigate this thing that's happening to them, right? And I'm with you. I think that generally speaking, then you see it skew so that a Christian person in Italy becomes possessed and seeks out the church to reckon with this in specific ways. Okay. And the Aboriginal in Australia seeks out the shaman and... Exactly. And so wherever you're at, it sort of aligns. That makes sense to me. Placebo is right. And I'm with you of of making sure we say that positive. It's not... So this was... Again, I should have known, but my aha with placebo was in my neuropsych classes when we were studying all the you know, synapses and things that form and, and placebo came up and I realized, oh, a lot of times, or at least I was guilty of talking about placebo as if it was an effect of something that you imagined, right? Like yeah. I'm getting better because I imagine it. And that's actually not the case. The case is placebo actually works. <laughs> it's not that it makes yeah. you think it's working. No, no. It actually rewires your neurology, your neurological mm-hmm. synapses in the same way as the medication would or the same. So, and and that's what I was like, oh, so, so yes, the belief, the top down sort of belief can be, and is at least equal to, if not greater than, and then the medication, just if it's above chance, then we go with it and it's, you know, it's good. Yeah. So in this case, yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. So then when you go, okay, now I am of my own volition seeking to root this out um, and work through it. This looks a lot like therapy. And and this is why I think, again, the modern day therapist is essentially the priest, right? It's the confessional booth that we used to have. And, you know, we all have different approaches and paradigms, but, and it also looks very similar. I am with you in that I would say, I don't need a pitchfork and a tail little guy out there trying to get in me to do something. And I also, and this comes up in the podcast, I, I more just hint at it. We don't do a deep dive but I'm like anybody. So like my my personal mental health things are anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. I've tried to describe to people who don't suffer from that the way that it actually feels. There are times 
when I get in the sort of like the low points and I can consciously, I can internally know that the thoughts and the ideas and the the things that are being said to me by myself (laughs) are like, I don't like them. I don't want them there and I want them to stop and I can't. They're saying things to me and, and clouding me in a way that feels as if it's not me. Right. Like yeah. that, that is if yeah. there is some other entity that isn't me that I have to wrestle against. And I'm going, that's a I, I'm wrestling with some demons, here, you know, in the colloquial sense. How many people who have struggled with sobriety or substance use issues have read the phrase and when a demon comes back, it comes back sevenfold. Yeah. And have felt like, well, that sounds about right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And right? so that, that, that maps on to people's experience, yeah. just given a different kind of set of yeah. worldview assumptions. I'm okay. Then going like, okay, yeah, let's, let's work with what the client has, right? Like let's, let's start with where they're at and what's most helpful for them. Um, and if they're an ardent theist who believes in that, like, okay, well let's talk about it in terms mm-hmm. of a, of a demon. If not, yeah. you know, now, all of that is true. And that's basically me. I'm, I'm more, my notion of the demonic is far more systemic and organizational. I think I share that. Richard yeah. Beck talks about it in The Slavery of Death, how yeah. it's like, what, what term would we use for the spirit that was yeah. coursing through 1930s Germany? Yeah. Yeah. An evil spirit? Is that yeah. a pretty good term for it? Yeah. Is that reducible to a bunch of German brains? Yeah. Uh, no, like we could sort no. of talk about it as a thing and, yeah. and, and sociologists and political scientists talk about these. I mean, talk about populism yep. in the world right now. Yeah. That's not just individual people Mm-mm. being populist. There's like a yeah. movement there. Yeah. Hegel had that language. So I, I yeah. think, I think that language is quite helpful. Yeah. For me. And I think it's helpful in terms of how we think about exercising these things, right? Like if you mm. can't name it, and that's, yeah, naming it is a big oh, part of it. Oh, that's great. So, yeah. I, we are legion. That's not very yeah. helpful, man. We need a little bit more than just yeah. a number. How <laughs> exactly. about we are, we are lust. Ah, thank yeah. you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Your name is lust. We, yeah. We are raw, <laughs> unchecked capitalism, right? Like that's, uh, so, <laughs> um, but it's, but it's and right. There right? Are like you, certainly many that one. Oh yes, oh, yeah. they are. And, and I go at an individual level, but. And this is where I think it's hard right now in the in the West and let's say North America, we're also so like autonomous individualists yeah. that it's hard for us to ad- admit or acknowledge. So the addiction literature might be one is a good example. And and I, I, I think this is a I always love this turn where it goes. The the solution to uh, addiction is not sobriety, it's community. And um, or it's relationships. And, and mm. it's like, oh, OK, wait. Connection. So whatever our connection. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever our demons are, one, they're not they're not just me and they're not just connected to me. Or, mm. They are much broader. They both have a, you know, um, let's just go horizontally. They're connected, yeah. um, but then vertically and historically. So I've inherited a structure and a system that was rigged to begin with <laughs> that positions me in certain ways. I've, in, I've inherited genetically a certain sort of inclination towards things. And when you add that, this is sort of the, uh, the emergent properties, right? So I said I was a monist. I maybe am like a, I could also be accused of being a, uh, a dual aspect monist, right? So, so over time, as humans interact and gather together, 
something emerges from their interactions. And that's what we would might call the spirit of that group or that family mm-hmm. or that yeah. people or that organization. And then it has a, a bit of a life of its own, not yeah. not an actual life of its own. No, if all those no. people went away, it wouldn't persist. Exactly. But it does have its own kind of emergent properties. Yeah. Yeah. And and it has what, what we would call top-down causality. So yes, that anybody that's exactly. ever worked at like a business or an organization and you go, why are we why are we doing this? Like if all the humans here in this group, we just went and started our own thing, it right. would not look like this. Right. But we all feel pressured yeah. to like do this thing. Yeah, family and you're like, expectations exactly. are exactly like um, that. Yep. So so that's where I go. The ability to not pretend as if that doesn't exist and doesn't have what I would call ontological weight, right? Like it doesn't mean that it is a thing, but but it has real force in the world. Um, we've got to be able to name that in some sort of way that helps us do something, right? Yeah. Now, I think this is my, this is sort of an operating theory, but the problem right now, whether it's in, let's say, just the psychological sciences or mental health field or the medical field or science field is we're too quick to what would be called like a a sort of methodological naturalism or, or basically eliminating any of that sense of higher order properties being real. Assuming that everything is best explained by the most microscopic level we can get to, to describe physically what's happening. Yeah. Right. So that if it's I could like psychologists show, yeah. are, are pretty skeptical of that because yeah. uh, and I'm not a psychologist yet, but, you know, dealing with the mind, you recognize that there are sort of cognitive mind properties of individuals yeah. and you don't only solve problems by taking medicine that changes the chemicals yeah. and the molecules. You also, you know, for instance, engage in narrative therapy. Yep. There's yep. something about the story that this person has told themselves or others have told them about themselves that is exerting pressure on them. And sometimes it's better to intervene at the level of the story. And other times, like as in most cases of ADHD, it is better to intervene at the level of the neurons yeah. and just get them and, firing better, you know? And, and knowing the difference is why you become an expert, right? right. Um, exactly. And, and I think though that the, in the contemporary, the 21st century in the North American West, the reason that horror films, I mean, so they basically saw, uh, saved the box back. office. Bring us right? back. They, Thank you. They, they saved the box office after coming out of COVID. The theaters almost were sunk. And it was a bunch of horror movies that, that saved Got people the day, back right? in. Yeah. To, to um, huddle together yeah. and be afraid together. And yeah. yeah. And they are up like even just the market share compared to 10 years ago, like they're up 20, 25% in terms of overall box office, mm. all these sort of things. Yeah. And so what I'm going thinking through is to say, okay, now as a cultural phenomenon, what we've got is a society that has, the mysterious middle has evaporated. The sort of collapse of traditional institutional religions where most people would have done something called spiritual, right? Some, they would have engaged with these demon possessions or, or even not supernatural, just, just what do I do with the traumas in my life and the, the family fallout and all this stuff would have been couched in religious terms, explicitly religious. Then you have the sort of denial of that and um, a rejection of that and the sort of materialist scientism or, or the sort of techno utopia that's being dangled in front of us. Mm-hmm. And what, What's lost is uh, uh, this place where you go, you know what? I've encountered 
some trauma. I've encountered some chaos. I've encountered some darkness. I've encountered some catastrophes in my life that are on the verge of the inexplicable. I don't have a, a clear, you know, one-to-one uh, ratio of here's how to explain the cause and the effect and the solution. And I need a place to navigate that. And so I think part of the draw now of horror films is this is a place where, number one, this kind of vague, incohate spirituality is allowed. It's, in fact, part of the genre. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not ridiculed or written off. It's taken seriously. You know, and, and again, there's there's ridiculous horror films, too. So <laughs> it's not like everyone's great. Yeah. But it's also not it's not couched in the same terms as, as you were just describing before, the Frank Peretti's or the Left Behind's. It's not spiritualized in terms of like, oh, here's good and evil. And it's clear that everyone who's not a, like a Protestant evangelical Christian is evil. <laughs> yeah. But Republican, right? Republican conservative, you know, it's, man, this is a complicated world and there's a lot of mystery to it. And there's something about that mystery that's both compelling and terrifying, and that's where we get back to the sort of the Rudolph Ottos of the world, the phenomenologist, or even the William James, father of American psychology, really interested in conversion stories. Yeah. And a lot of what they were encountering was this, again, not universal, but a common human experience of when I come up against what I would call a religious or spiritual encounter, it has a couple things that are involved. And one is a sense of attraction? Am I lured to her? I I can't help but not look. And at the same time, it's terrifying, (laughs) right? It's so big. It's so overwhelming that I am just utterly terrified, but I can't look away, right? Like I can't not look. And that to me is like the classic sort of, you know, I got my fingers (laughs) watching the film through your Um, slotted fingers. Yeah. And that is at the core of it, what I would call religious experience or what we've, Hmm. the kind of language we've used, Um, even though it has has no connection to a a religious tradition per se or anything like that. But that sense of being terrified and allured at the same time, to me, is like a core human experience um, that somehow both our religious traditions and our other sort of cultural practices are missing and why a thing like the horror genre is so compelling to people right now, because it somehow, it taps into that that core sort of human experience. Okay. Two related things here that I'm kind of sticking on. I think autobiographically, because I had to kind of cognitive therapy my way out of panic disorder, yeah, which I didn't have that language for it, but that's kind of how I would describe it now. Learned to sort of think my way out of panic attacks. And that was quite successful for me. I think I have now a sort of reflex to downplay danger, uh, downplay mystery, you know, like there, there is a part of me that is uncomfortable with certain kinds of it because it feels too much like just waiting for my next panic attack used to feel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I have pretty good reasons for doubting most of the sort of alien stuff these days. I think I have really good reasons for doubting it, but I also recognize in myself a kind of a reflex to not have to believe there is some huge, awful lurking possibility or whatever. But then the other thing that I am kind of catching on or, or finding myself coming back to is like, is there an appropriate amount of fearing the Lord or fearing the, the world that the Lord has made? You know, like I think you and I both are pretty clear on the pitfalls of 
almost this fetishization of fear in conservative Christianity. And that's the the reason that it is used at developmentally inappropriate ages. It gets results. It's really this kind of skewed view of things uh, at its core. But do we go all the way to the other end and sort of eschew fear of the of the big the, of, you know, what Joseph Campbell called the Mysterium Tremendum? He, he stole that from Otto. That took it that's from Otto. Oh, Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. OK, so this well, what what Campbell used to say when he was alive was that, you know, he didn't he didn't like that Vatican II took the mass out of Latin. He hmm. thought there was something like even if you didn't speak it, the fact that it was being done in this other language made it this sort of mysterious right uh, that that actually had some value for people. He's probably right. I think there's also a benefit to people being able to understand the words. You know, there's something there. I think I'm prone to ignore it or downplay it. Maybe as I get healthier and and understand myself and the world better, I I'll find uses for that, or I, I can maybe find that golden mean. What do you think about that? Is there a is there well, an a, a, the right amount of this kind of fear uh, yeah. in in a religious life? Well, both to you and to anyone listening, everyone needs to know their own sort of know themselves, right? Yeah. So, um, where you're at on your journey and and what that means exactly is going to be different for everybody. So, with that qualification being said, I started at least the podcast on horror. Part of it was just my own personal journey. I was not a horror fan at all um, and didn't didn't do well with it. And so I was kind of like, I was one of those like, why why is everyone so interested? Like, what is up with that? That's weird. And why why yeah. do I not handle it very well, right? And so I think when I started it, I had in mind uh, perfect love casts out fear, right? Like that the, the objective, even if you are going to go into these scary movies or whatever, is kind of what you're saying, like to eliminate fear, Right. Like the goal is to stop fearing. Right. Isn't that what we should do? And then I stopped and I go now again, I'm I'm a Christian theologian. And so I stopped and I said, but actually, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it's interesting. And within my own sort of religious texts, fear itself is not the problem. Right. It's I would say the misdirection of our fear is the Mm. problem. And so. I think, and this is sort of something I've taken up for my own life, is to go, it's not so much I want to eliminate or eradicate fear from my life, it's how do I learn how to fear rightly? How do I point my fear in a direction that brings life instead of further trauma and terror and destruction? And that could look like all sorts of things. I mean, um, you know, if we're just going to go super biblical, you know, you got the Leviathan, right? Now, in the creation to come, right, the new creation, there will be a Leviathan, should I go and just like throw rocks at the Leviathan and not, I mean, like sleep under his giant massive, like, no, he'll crush me. Like I should, there should be a healthy dose. If I go to the Grand Canyon and like start pushing people over, like I should stand and we might use the language of awe maybe uh, yeah. more or something. And I think that's fine. But, but as long as it's not sort of like a, a, a nicety, right? Like no, there's, it's actually dangerous. Yeah, you fall yeah. down the Grand Canyon, yeah. you're dead. Like that, yeah, it's you just, should that's be afraid it. of that. Yeah, exactly. And so um, something like that, I think is right. But then when you get to the question of God, whatever and whoever and however God is, we go, that's like a, a whole nother order of awe is not enough, right? Like genuinely, there should be something where we go, all the rest of this stuff is me artificially 
or unnecessarily being afraid, right? Like I'm afraid of all the wrong things. And that drives so much. That's what I think the, the evangelical subculture does is they, they, they have us fear all the wrong stuff. Meanwhile, we're not afraid of the right stuff. <laughs> um, I actually hmm. think, I think the evangelical, and I'm, I'm speaking for my own tribe here that I was raised in. Like, I think that the scariest thing in the world is Jesus to them. Like, like mm. if, if the implications of what Jesus is actually saying and doing that we would actually do and say those things, that's terrifying. That <laughs> causes us to fear and, and artificially create all sorts of things to fear. And it becomes fear of the other, fear of, you know, political other, racial other, ethnic Economic, other, all the things. Economic, other, like all yeah, the things. Yeah, all that stuff, yeah. And so we spend so much of that time convincing ourselves that we should be afraid, but it's still a fear-based thing rooted in a misdirection of our fears. So, yeah, I think at the end of the day, the goal, the objective is how do I fear rightly and how does that become a part of something that, that gives life instead of death? And so that's where I would say even to your specific situation— Sometimes that actually means you got to, <laughs> you got to kind of like uh, bracket things out and be like, okay, I, right now I'm in a state where it's like, that's not going to be healthy, right? Like I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not going to go there. There's one uh, other bit of psychology, some studies, they were studying like the different kinds of people that are attracted to horror genre and, and, and mm. fears. And then what the outcomes, the benefits for those different people. Yeah. And so for those that they had, they kind of fell into the three different types one was the adrenaline junkie, right? Just a straight up, I'm going for the thrills like a roller coaster. One was what they called the white knucklers, right? And that was like, I'm trying to like show myself and others that I can do this, right? It's like, yeah. all right, I'll make it through. And they hate it, but they do it. And then the third one they found that was, they, they thought most surprising and interesting was, and this was because they kept finding these other good outcomes, right? Like they're like, this doesn't make sense. Why would... Why would other mental health outcomes be positive going into a, you know, something that's terrifying? And so they started call, uh, calling them the dark copers, which is essentially to say part of the way that they navigated the traumas and the, and the chaos of their life was to cope by going through this otherwise difficult experience. Hmm. Now, that is not everybody. <laughs> and that's where some of us are not dark copers. Um, right. we, we won't get those benefits. And you wouldn't and, want to force someone into that mold if it no, wasn't no, no. where they were. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they weren't pushing anybody and they were observing yeah. coming out of it of like, well, what did you gain from yeah. it? And why would yeah. you keep returning? That makes sense. What I like about that is it does suggest there are, it is a possibility. Um, it doesn't mean everyone has to do it, but there are ways to, I think, engage our fears in healthy ways and, in, in what we would call maybe pro-social or, um, with beneficial outcomes. But again, always have to qualify, but it's not for everybody and not yeah. at all times in all places. So, um, yeah. yeah, I've actually, I've thought many times that my sort of lifelong proclivity for dark films sort of was a preview of the fact that I would end up a therapist. Mm. I, I mm. really, I think there's mm. a, there's some kind of temperamental connection there. Mm -hmm. The only times in my life that I've ever really not had a had an appetite for those kinds of films are, you know, if I was really anxious for a, for a season or whatever, or when I've had multiple really tough cases at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then my sort of appetite diminishes. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as those clients yeah. start making progress or whatever, yeah. like I'm back, I'm back yeah. to watching really dark stuff. And yeah. 
And I, I do think there's something interesting about that. But again, it's it's temperamental. It's person to person. I think that's the right thing to yeah. say about it. Cutter, this has been such a fun conversation. If people found this intriguing, they should definitely check out Be Afraid. Anything else you'd like to say to people, a way they can connect with your work? Uh, no, you can check me out at CutterCalloway.com. Got all my, my stuff. I'm a, I don't know what you call me, but a jack of all trade, a master of none. So uh, don't, don't be surprised if you find children's illustrated books on there and uh, horror podcasts and other stuff. But uh, you, can, you can check me out there. That's a, good, that's a good professional life, in my opinion. Get those interests out, fanning out wide. I love that. That's right. that's well, right. thanks so much, man. What a pleasure. Yep. Thanks so much.